for that phone. Reach for it. Dial that number. Brace, kill those. Seven, three, four. Brace, CBS. Seven, six, three, three, five, zero, zero. Heavenly Radio. Down to the soil. When you're down and troubled and you need... Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, Honor Moore is here in the studio. Honor, welcome. Thank you. Welcome to WCBN. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, This is a taped program, uh, December 1st, 2008. Honor is in town uh, for Day With, parentheses, Out art um and and so hopefully some of you listening will have had a chance to hear honor when she was reading at the michigan league today um and just to start off i'll i'll read a little bit about the day because it it seems it's very important while you're while you're why you are visiting us honor renowned american poet memoirist biographer and playwright honor moore will read from her work to mark this year's day with out art. Since the first day with Out Art on December 1st, 1989, this National Day of Action and Mourning has commemorated the devastating toll that HIV and AIDS have taken on the worldwide arts communities. This program is co-sponsored by the University of Michigan Museum of Art and the Creative Writing Program of the UM Department of English as part of the Zell Visiting Writing Series um, and support by others as well. Um, so I'm very pleased to welcome you here. Well, it's my honor. honor. <laughs> yeah, what is Sorry. it like having the, the name? <laughs> I mean, to have such a name, I was thinking your parents really, they thought, well, she's going to do great things, but there was no way out for you, was there? <laughs> no, and it was sort of torture um, in grade school in Indianapolis, Indiana in, ni- in the ni- late 1950s. But uh, I've recovered. And um, I like it. Made it made you stronger. It made me stronger. Yeah, <laughs> self-reliant. <laughs> yeah, we will. Yeah, let's not go. I was just going to say, what were some of the things that happened? But yeah, there's no need to go flashback to that honor. Um, also, as way of introduction, uh, we're going to be talking about your latest book um, from W.W. W. Norton Press, The Bishop's Daughter, a memoir. And from the back of the book. Um, It reads, Honor Moore is the author of the poetry collections Red Shoes, Darling, and Memoir. She is also the author of the biography The White Blackboard, A Life of the Painter Margaret Sargent by Her Granddaughter, which was named New York Times Notable Book. She lives in New York City. Um, So now we can fill in some more of your biography, (laughs) if you don't mind. (laughs) So, so, um, so... Honor, you. I read it in the, an article that you wrote for the Huffington Post mm-hmm. about um, that preceded the release, the launch of the book, I believe. Um, the, just the after, Bishop's daughter, yeah. or just after? Okay, and it was on Father's Day mm-hmm. that you you gave a talk. Um, how long has this memoir been in the works? Like, what sort of project? The scope of it for you? Well, um, my father died in on May Day. 2003, and it came out on May 20th, 2008. Um, So it was between sort of roughly 
February 2004 and the fall of 2007 that it was written, but uh, I think but all was- writers all writers have um, these things that you write, you madly write, and then you put them into a folder thinking that you'll never publish them. And so I had various chunks of it. Which you referred to, I think, as the secret pages. Yes, the, the, yeah, the secret and so, pages. And 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 so you were writing it before your your father's. Death. I I was trying to write it, but <clears throat> I was trying to write it, but um, my relationship with my father, uh, the word I use is turbulent. Um, it uh, and when I was sort of trying to write it, I could not see past a lot of anger I had at him. Um, which now, from the philosophical point of view of five years after his death, I think, well, we were both powerful personalities and we were butting heads. But now I think it was, you know, I lost my little girl, dreamy father to um, life and a million brothers and sisters and my mother's death and uh, his... But when did you lose him? Like, do, do you feel like you lost him then before before his death or, or there was a series no, of No, I lost him um, probably fully around my mother's death, which was in 1973 when I was uh, in my late 20s. And um, then it was just quite a struggle then really until um, until he died. And in the months leading up to his death, I was fortunate enough to... You were to, with him. I, you know, there are, I have eight brothers and sisters and we were all with him and we took turns was the upside of having a tribe. Um, And during that time, I just, all my anger and um, sadness dissolved, and all I wanted was to be near him, and all my childhood adoration and and admiration of him returned, and I was able to really um, reconcile with him uh, at the end of his life. And Therefore, then there was a story. Yes. It seems like then that the secret pages are very different than what what became what what you had to write um, after his death, because then it was almost like a quest of some sort, like before it was writing maybe for to try to understand or to cope with some sort of anger that you said was boiling over that was hard to release because well because what's at stake for your father was a secret and and he had told you but then it asked you not to tell anyone and he never asked me not to tell anyone oh he didn't no um what he said was you are not going to write a short story about it <laughs> and I thought to myself, doesn't he know I don't write fiction? Right. <laughs> well, surely there'd be a few poems first, uh, Dad. <laughs> um, no, I uh, I really couldn't write a. I, I I wrote scenes. I mean, I wrote, you know, the equivalent of journal scenes. Um, interestingly, there's a there's a sequence in the book about Nona Clark, who was a woman my father almost married. In Seattle. In Seattle, yeah. Um, And that I wrote as a senior in college in the in the creative writing class I took as a senior in college, and it almost went just as is into this book. So there are other scenes like that. Um, 
trying to oh that's so interesting yeah. too then because thinking about when when you put it in where were you did you have to rework it even though not the, very the much stu- really it was very so the strange voice was the, the same voice was from- there it was as if the voice had always been there and it was that voice of being able to talk to my father and so um the book in a way you could say was uh trying to integrate our life, our long life together into memory, kind of an act of repair, an act of integration or transformation, an act of self-forgiveness, as well as an act of forgiving him. And... um, because of your part in keeping a distance between you, or is that is that what you mean well, by self forgiveness? Well, um, two or? things happened. One was that my father's second wife was a woman who um, really did not want children, and she married a man with nine children, and she was very close to me in age. And she, um, I, you know, in in kind of deep emotional terms, she she took him away from us, you know. Um, and I think, in a way, my my father wanted someone to himself, you know, wanted. Uh, and then the second thing was discovering uh, when I was 45 in 1990 that my father had had a secret life as a bisexual man. And since I, at that time, was involved with women, uh, in my life was started uh, as heterosexual and then had 15 years in between as with women and then returned to men. Uh, but at that time that I discovered this part of my father's life, um, I thought, oh, finally we'll be able to talk. Now I understand. Now I understand a lot of things and wouldn't it, won't it be wonderful when we can talk about it? And understandably, at the time, I was furious that he didn't want to talk to me about it. Now I really understand that this was a very painful thing for him to have had this double life and that he wanted to keep this private. And at a certain point, like how, how would you try to reconcile something that you've had to keep so divided, at least in your yes. own heart, thinking it had to be that way. Yes, no and, I, way. and I think that those splits become, become organic. They start, yes. they start as a in, decision or they start as a necessity, yes. you know, <laughs> and then they become a choice and then they become organic. Um, it's, uh, they become a kind of part of the psyche. Mm. And mm. Um, so that's what I think happened to him. And of course, these were things that I, I was too much wanting a father to be able to have enough compassion for him, even though what I said to myself was, he could talk to me about it. Yeah, but I mean, why would he want to talk to his oldest daughter about this deepest private thing that in the end had to do with his betrayal of her mother, whom he loved and whom he knew she loved? You know, it's these are the these are the consequences of the closet, which is what I really want to say on this day without art without art, is that um, people have said, well, you know, how can, how can you not judge your father for cheating on your mother? I said, do you think, I would say, do you think he wanted to? Do you think he would have done, led his life this way if he had had any choice? And, you know, then I described sitting in a room with him with my therapist. We had 
10 hours of therapy together, sitting with him in a room and him saying, I, in tears, this great big, tall, Six foot five, like beautiful a man. Yes. man who had done all these very courageous and amazing things, as weeping a yes. as a crusader and as social crusader, activist, yes. saying, I can't help the way I was made. And uh, what I'm able to say in the book was, I can't bear that you're ashamed of how you were made. I love how you were made. I couldn't say that in the therapist's office. Um, you know, it was... Why, why is that? Why? Well, think about it. You know, there were there were a lot of other things going on. I thought maybe it's not my place to say that. I put my hand on his knee. That's what I did. Um, you know, I, I, I come from a wasp background, and there are a lot of jokes about that. But the fact is that uh, it's not an emotionally expressive culture. And uh, so speaking personally is difficult, sort of, it's in your DNA that it's difficult um, anyway, but um, under the circumstances, it was even more difficult. And my father was ashamed. You know, they're, 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 that's another element of the closet. It, it, one closets oneself out of deep shame. Um, I guess, and it's not like you can solve that for someone can no. you, you can't take it away no um well well honor that's let's take a short break and when we come back may we hear a, a piece from your book sure um sure. today on living writers honor more uh with her memoir the bishop's daughter we'll be back you're listening to wcbn of course it's our fundraiser and if you like this show as i do Living Writers has some really great and famous authors and not-so-famous authors who are also great on it. Please call 763-3500 and contribute to this radio station, WCBN. That's, once again, 734-763-3500. You can uh, attribute your pledge to The Living Writers Show and show your appreciation for all the hard work that T. Hetzel puts in every week. To bring you uh, really, really good interviews. I think they're just stellar and on a par of quality of any nationally broadcast show that you could care to listen to when it comes to uh, writers and their works. So 763-3500. It'd be great to hear from you. Just joining us, you're listening to Living Writers today. Um, today in the studio, Honor Moore is here, and and I'd like to say thanks very much to Hugh Stimson, who's engineering, and and uh, finding this 
these this beautiful music that we just happened to mention a few moments ago and Hugh goes and procures it and then it's so beautiful that it slays you doesn't it sort of <laughs> well you know it's a song that I listen I remember listening to when I was about 11 and 12 and 13 in my bedroom in Indianapolis Indiana and um of course I was thinking about my boyfriend or my the boy I had a crush on, but that phrase uh, uh, in the French, it's, uh, you know, joys of love endures the whole life long, and then it's chagrin, chagrin of love. And in the translation, they translate it as pain, but I'm thinking that chagrin uh, is such a wonderful word for... Uh, the feeling I have about my love for my father, which is uh, a combination of uh, regret for things not said, that kind of discomfort you have when someone you love is lost and and somehow you've been unable to quite ever say what you wanted to say. And um, so it's sort of... Yes. Quite a... Who knew, right? Who knew that <laughs> that's what that song was about all those years ago? No, no. You know? How do we ever know, right? Even though we're living and even if we think we can tell ourselves that we, we're striving to be aware and to be in the moment and yeah. to live fully and, and to love and as fully, like the people that we love, they know, you know, we love them. Or, yeah. But then... How do we ever know? Because there's moments, there's probably people who are also thinking um, maybe of us at different times that we have no idea. Exactly. Either, like what their, their chagrin or their love. Uh, and pain. of course, a love story is all is by definition a story that has all the elements of love in it. Which and includes loss. Yeah. And I remember uh, one day before the Bishop's Daughter came out, um, my therapist and I were talking about it and he said well it's really a love story yes yeah and yeah. how did you feel when he said that is it something where I thought, you were... yes <laughs> <laughs> you know love is kind of beauty at the beginning and then loss and complication and then hope hopefully reconciliation and one of the great things about being an artist is that you have alternative ways to make that reconciliation you know and that's and that's what this is. Then. Well, and I'm going to read just a little bit from the very beginning of the book. And uh, you're in New York City. It is Easter, and in the darkness of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, the singing soars in descant, the Gothic ceiling multiplying the clamor. And now, as if a great storm has ceased, there is no music. And in the silence held by 5,000 worshipers, there come three resounding knocks. And as we wait, the massive doors swing open, an ethereal shaft of sunlight floods the dark. The roar of the city breaks the gigantic quiet, and there, at the far end of the aisle, in a blaze of morning light, stands the tall figure of a man, my flesh-and-blood father, the bishop. 
When I was a child, I accepted my father as a force of imagination that flared and burst and coruscated, an instrument of transformation. During World War II, he had survived a Japanese bullet and had a scar to prove it. If my heart had been going this way instead of that, he announced once, rowing me across the lake in the Adirondacks, you would never have existed. Remembering his saying that now, I am startled. It was a joke, of course, but it was also the text of a lesson that endured throughout our life together. My father had supernatural powers. His fate had determined my existence. I was something he had made and would continue to make. Physical independence from my physical parents was one thing. I got too big to hold my mother's hand, too big to ride on my father's shoulders. But it took me decades to escape the enchantment of my father's priesthood. Yes. And, or if there's... Um, there's... Um, um, <laughs> We're having a sort of a, a Kleenex kind crisis. of emotional here. <laughs> the Kleenex crisis. Anyway, we solved it. Yeah, you're, you're brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah, that's something with the because um, the the father and the mother. That's always so mysterious, yes. right, to the child. Anyway, and then the the way that you put us there at that moment. It's only a thousandfold then because he's. Um, He's epic and mysterious to then this whole congregation of yes. people yes. and and linked to God. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. So what? Um, yes. One of the things I, I thought of when I was conceiving the book was, how am I going to write about this God part? Because I'm not a churchgoer. It's not that I don't. I'm not an atheist, but I'm not a churchgoer. And... Um, I, in order, I particularly believe in a personal God. But anyway, I believe that there is a power force greater than I am. Um, but how was I going to talk about this? And I realized that uh, my that my fa what my father and I have in common is that we were both um, have chosen lives in which we wrestle with the unseen, in which we try to make sense of the unseen. Seen I through poetry and my father through preaching and through vocation as an Episcopal priest and later bishop. And um, it was such a relief. Then I could actually write about the evolution of his work and its intertangling. With mine, I mean, one of the things that really happens when you write these books is you get a new and different understanding, not only of the person you're writing about, but about the events that you're writing about. And um, when one thing is next to another, I mean, a sort of the most dramatic uh, uh, example of that in the book was... I was reading my parents' letters, wartime letters, which I didn't even know existed when I decided to do the book. And um, I found out that my, my parents' romance had been on again, off again. It was wartime. There was all this pressure to either connect or disconnect. Um, there was a sense that, you know, life was um, precious, uh, but it was not precious and so on. And... They had a, you know, they were 20 and 22 and 20, you know, they were kids. And so they were having this on again, off again kid romance and they, they broke up 
And my father had had a conversion experience in his teens when he was at an Episcopal school in New Hampshire. So he was already really into his religious practice. He, he didn't know he was going to be a priest. He was considering it. But my mother had kind of had an ersatz, half Unitarian, half Catholic upbringing. And, and her nanny had been the key figure yes, in her, her faith, in, right? Yes. The, her, and um, she um, decided to, my father had said, go see Gordon Wadhams at such and such a church in Manhattan and see what you make of it. And so she writes him a letter that she's uh, made her confession and uh, been confirmed. And and she feels pure walking down the street. Right? Well, she feels pure. And she also, but yeah, she feels pure. She understands something about him. But what was interesting to me was the whole tenor of their communication changed. I always had, a, how did they go from being these kind of trivial kids in love or in lust to these two people still in their early 20s who were going to undertake this really serious partnership, leaving their kind of upper class backgrounds, going into the church, working with the poor. How, how did that happen? And I found it. And this was, and this was it. This yeah, was the discovery. That, that was the discovery. And suddenly their conversations were very serious. I mean, they still had romantic things that they said to each other, but it was very serious. They had meaning to to their marriage. Um, so it was a partnership in that sense. Yes. It became something of like a like the life of ideas or the yes. mind rather than just the physicality. Yes. And a commitment to something larger than themselves. Yes. Yeah. Which it seemed like it, it, it was really, it was amazing reading the letters, how you have them in there too, because you wouldn't know that they were so young from even the way that they spoke in the letters. Although some of the, the there was, you know, anger and impetuousness. Yeah. And so right. that part was there. But even how they present themselves you think of them as much uh, sort of beyond the years but 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 it seems like the your mother was especially searching for something because she had suitors around her as as your father did when he was away but they couldn't offer that that, that connection to that something that something greater something greater that she definitely need coming from the family it seems like she did without that with yes. her, her mother and uh, yes her, uh, her mother well her mother was a painter uh her mother it turned out, just as my parents were courting, it was my grandmother was being diagnosed as bipolar. But up until that time, she was simply an alcoholic. And med yeah, self-medicating. A self-medicating bipolar person. And um, it was very, very difficult. And, um, and somewhat abusive, you know. Um, it, it was actually not an easy thing to go from writing about my grandmother from the point of view of her life and her struggles to writing about her from my mother's point of view. Two very different people. Yes, and the the book you're referring to, Honor, is going to be reissued next year with um, by Norton with the paperback of this book. Yes, The White Blackbird, A Life of the Painter Margaret Sargent by her granddaughter. Yes. I'm very excited that it's going to come back out again. And um, because I, in a way, I see these two books as two-thirds of a trilogy, maybe even. Cause oh. Because I, I have this... Trinitarian upbringing. Yes. <laughs> so, so is that something that you're? Are you working on? I'm dreaming the... about it, scratching at it, and dreaming about it. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking something. I mean, I had biography with elements of memoir, memoir with elements of biography. This might be memoir with elements of autobiography. I feel I did that more 
More fiction, maybe. Really? Oh, that's Some kind of mixture like Julia Blackburn, uh, Daisy Bates in the Desert, uh, William Maxwell's So Long, See You Tomorrow, which is a memoir that morphs that into book. a novel. Yes, that's yeah. a beautiful book. Beautiful that, book. That oh, um, oh, that's so interesting. So Thinking that's about my mother, thought. actually. Oh, and bringing your mother as the, the forefront. Yeah, um, but... That seems only fair. No, just the dream, the dream in a dreamy sense. You know, how does someone survive in memory? And I don't know. It's very vague, so mm-hmm. it may not even end up being that. But I'm scratching at it. Well, that sounds good. It's good to be. That means there's work happening. <laughs> exactly. Right? And, and so you're you're actually someone that's comfortable working across uh, across the the genres. So it is. It's. It just seems natural that this 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 if there is going to be this part of the the third part of the trinity there of of the story that you would be blending things yeah. moving in and out of the the boundaries yeah, i spoke to marilyn robinson i was saying you know she she told me about home before she before it came out and she said you know i always i the the characters in housekeeping lived and lived and lived and lived, but I didn't think I could write another book about them. But with Gilead, I did think I could write another book about them. So I'm really taking my um, hint from her. Uh, you know that the, the characters are still somehow floating around there. Yeah, there's something else to be said. Then, something else there? to be said. We'll take a short break and then we'll say some more things okay. after that. Right. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on our more, we'll be back. Welcome back to the dance party. Um, <laughs> so, Honor, what, what's your memory of seeing the Beatles? When did you? I never saw them, although my mother, enterprising woman that she was with nine children, did take a, a couple of groups of my siblings to hear them in person amongst all the screaming teenagers. I only found this out two years ago. You and mean, I thought, Mom, were you already out of the house? I then? was out of the house in college. <laughs> that's but what you get for that's going what I to get. college. And uh, then I remember coming home to Washington the first uh, year that we were in Washington. My father became suffragan bishop of Washington in 19, January of 1964. And I came home and I remember driving across one of those, the Potomac River and hearing, I want to hold your hand. And Washington was really um, where my father came into prominence as an activist and um, where he 
It was the moment uh, after Kennedy's assassination, John Kennedy's assassination, and <clears throat> it was the height of the civil rights movement, and my father had always been active in the civil rights movement, and he came into some kind of national prominence during Selma. He didn't go actually go to Selma, but he was involved in the demonstrations uh, in Lafayette Park across from the White House to try and put pressure on Johnson to send troops so that the Selma march could take place. And so for me, I want to hold your hand is <clears throat> about the about, march. The, about yeah. the march, about the civil rights movement, you know, and really about a kind of the beginning of a new era of my parents' life lives that uh, I was sort of a witness to from afar. And and having both of them uh, be sort of in a, in some in activist parents like take mm-hmm. this as like whether driven by their faith or, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that commitment. Um, so that's something that you can't escape then either. Like that's something that's impacted. Is that, I, I think it's impa- interesting. I think it's impacted both my life and my work. I think that it uh, made it very easy for me to understand feminism when it came at me. Uh, to understand what that was um, when in 1969 I was in New York and this thing called the women's movement was was starting. Um, but also I think it's part of what um, makes me insist um, sometimes in my poetry, but even to a greater extent in my nonfiction, on opening up the memoir so that it is taking place in a social, political, and historical moment. I think that our experience is part of a moment. I think it's no accident. can't be divorced from it. It can't be divorced from it. It's no accident that my parents came into their adulthood right after World War II, when a whole generation of people were coming into a kind of optimism. I think it's no accident that my grandmother painted at the end, in the mid-1920s, when women were beginning to make art. I mean, we don't do these things in a, in a vacuum, you know. Right. And I think, um, you know, it's no accident. I, I was talking the other day in Miami about memoir, and someone had given me this incredible stuff called extreme caffeine, which comes in a can. I said, I want some iced coffee. And it was... <laughs> Uh, and suddenly I started talking, someone said, well, why memoir now? And I said, well, I think what's interesting is what's happened in the last 20 years is a kind of democratization of literature in this country. And people really want us to make distinctions. People want all different voices and they want to know the truth of all different voices. They don't want one voice portraying a lot of you know they want and I said like the universal within one story it, 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 you it, want it's it. the universe we want the we but want a lot of different the universes of the uni- yes, yeah. yeah and I said isn't it interesting that the president we have now that we're about to have has written a memoir uh, because dreams from my father really is yes. <laughs> a memoir mm-hmm. I mean this is a man who might have become a writer instead of a politician Instead of president, you know, and that's I, I just couldn't believe it when I when I read it. And I and I just think it's a very interesting thing about our time. Um, this this form. Yes. This genre. This. Yes. Yeah. And that it's really come into its its own, really, yeah. hasn't it? And now because it's had that 
coming into its own and people talking about, well, what is the truth of memoir and what's the fact within it and what is, and now it seems like it's going, um, cause even in what you were saying about your part of the Trinity with the, it's then now it's moving past that where more things will become blurred again, maybe for it. Well, you know, I don't think they necessarily have to become blurred. I think that, uh, you tell the truth, uh, your truth, you, you tell your truth, uh, and you don't make things up. I mean, I think I was in jail for three days. Is I was in jail for three months is not the same as I was in jail for three days. That's making something up. Changing someone's hair color because you want to protect their privacy is not making something up. Mm. Um, so the intention behind it, too. Perhaps. You know, and I have there's a there's a scene in The White Blackbird in which I have my grandmother um, actually having a studio in Paris and painting there, uh, which she never did. And I was saying to the editor, well, you know, she never did do that. She said, well, just put I imagine in there. And that's what I did. And it doesn't change the intensity of it. Because really what we're talking about is what memoir is, is a kind of fusion of the imagination and memory. You use the imagination to bring memory to life. You use the imagination to choose what parts of the story to tell. You use the imagination to construct one story out of life. And literature is not life. You know, even 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 a word describing... A watch. This is a watch. You know, the word watch is not a watch. So, you know, language is a fiction, et cetera, as they say, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. To get to get at what the core is. Yeah. There's. Yes. That's. Yeah. It's all we have. Right. Exactly. Language and this artifice or. Yeah. You know. Exactly. But thank goodness we do. I know. Because it makes us talk about that's the way of connecting and becoming more than what what we are like the only way like the like the ideas uh, making them come into being in some mm-hmm. way right right which is more than our physical selves exactly. <laughs> exactly. um wow there's so many things to say from that let's but I, I i want us to get to one of your poems to at least to hear a poem okay um, and uh and and you wrote a biography also of Amy Lowell, poet. I didn't write a biography of Amy Lowell. What oh, I didn't. wrote oh. was a, error. <laughs> a, no, I wrote a. Uh, I selected a group of her poems for the Library of America, oh. and wrote a biographical introduction to that volume. Okay. Um, and so she had been a large influence on on your no, work. No, I never. Or, or read they just a single asked poem you? of hers until they asked me, and the reason they asked me was because I had written. Um, the book about my grandmother, who was a Boston woman, Margaret Sargent, a generation younger than Amy Lowell. Oh, I see. So it was the same world. It it was, I really knew the world. And in fact, there were some overlap in in characters. But, um, uh, and as I said, I I liked the idea of going back to uh, Boston again, but uh, I wasn't ever going to go there for a whole book. A biography is a life, you know. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, one of the things I was going to say is that um, I think poetry, in a way, led me to uh, non the kind of nonfiction I write, because you can put a lot in a poem, and you have to find ways to put a lot in a poem. And so I'm going to read you a kind of fictional poem, <laughs> 
Uh, but it does have in it some things that I love, including a dream of mine, the robbery. The sky turned purple, bright purple, so I wasn't sure if it was real or part of my dream. The train. All of us on a train traveling through the mountains. A strange landscape. The sky pale. Everything dark against it. Columns. Trees bright green. And then a clock tower built of brick that resembled ivory. Face gold in the coming night. Baroque horses rampant, pearlescent beyond the dusky indigo. I had stolen her jewelry, and now I was willing to return it. The train stopped beneath the burnished portico, but only for a moment, long enough for me to hand amethysts to the tall bartender who thanked me in Italian. Donald lay nearly asleep, refusing to watch the changing sky or look at the architecture, gesture of a city long kept from us. The end of sun burned the horizon as we ate around a table the color of violins. Yes, I remember. Horses fearful, foam at their mouths as they rear, the clock enormous, the roof's verdigree glittering at moonrise. See the name Donald, I changed the name. About everything else. <laughs> everything else is absolutely true. <laughs> I was going to take issue with some of the dream part. <laughs> no way. It was that purple. No way. <laughs> yeah, that is actually a really great moment when Donald comes into it because it's so somehow shocking. Like there was no way to foresee that Donald was going to make an appearance somehow. I, I know, know, whoever he is. <laughs> You'll never know. <laughs> yeah. I'm okay with that. I, I, I see your poetic ways. I see them. Um, and so so f- f- you you actually you won an NEA grant of, of let's see, in 1981. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when did you, so that's very public recognition and, and uh, it's sort of like the public asking you to continue with your art. Mm-hmm. What was like? What was it like before? Like, when did you decide that that art would be your way? Because uh, maybe it's a way of connecting with the spirit as well, like understanding. Yeah. Um, well, I started writing poems in my early twenties, and I did get a uh, an award from the New York State Council of on the Arts when I wrote my play in 1974. So that was Keep and that's Going. The, the morning. Um, morning Pictures morning with a pictures. U. And that was poems, which became a play with music. And um, was that a natural outgrowth because of the people that you were around at the time? So yeah. It became, somebody so, said, oh, I gave a reading and someone said, why don't you make this into something for the theater? And I said, yes. Yes. You're supposed to say yes. <laughs> um, and... Um, so I was pretty. Then the play opened in. It was a big hit in Massachusetts, and then it opened and closed on Broadway in a week. And then I had to recover for about a year or two. And then I began to write poems again, and also uh, to write The White Blackbird. And so the first book of poems came out in '88, Memoir, and, and that was before Memoir was a thing. 
and um, the White Blackbird came out in '96. And then two books of poems, um, Darling and Red Shoes, in 2001 and 2005. And so why did you name that first book of poems memoir? It's actually the, after the title poem, which uh, I actually think I'm going to have read later uh, this evening, because it's about um, a friend who died of AIDS, the first person I know, knew personally who died of AIDS. Um, and it seemed the right title for my poems, which all seemed to have to do with some degree of memory or another. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Honor, we'll be back um, to hear some more, to talk a bit more. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and we'll be back. We shall overcome. There are many ways to raise money. Daddy's feeling lucky. Come on, come on. Oh, snake eye. Nobody's going to see these pictures, right? This guy on the internet says he can cut me in on his inheritance. WCBN isn't allowed to do that. That's why we're counting on you for our annual fundraiser, Friday, March 6th through Sunday, March 15th. Give us a call at 734-763-3500 with your method of payment ready. Your support keeps Radio Free Ann Arbor strong. Call 734-763-3500. We're waiting to hear from you. We'll walk hand in hand. Listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so pleased to have on the program Honor Moore. Um, we have, let's see, we've got two of Honor's books here out of several um, The Bishop's Daughter, a memoir that's just out this year with Norton. Um, and will be reissued in paper um, next year in May. Again, May is a magic month for, yeah. for the, the happenings, it seems like. Um, huge happenings, I guess, both good and bad. Um, at any rate, with, and also with your, your book, The White Blackbird, A Life of the Painter Margaret Sargent by her granddaughter, which we're also speaking of. I have another book coming out in April, which is uh, called Poems from the Women's Movement. Oh, wonderful. And you know that American Poetry Project of the Library of America? They have the big black volumes, which are Hemingway and Frost and Stevens and... And now this... Bishop. And now they, ha and they have uh, a smaller, a series of smaller books called the American Poetry Project. And it's some anthologies, and it's some, you know, like the Amy Lowell selected poems I did for that. Well, this is poems from the women's movement. And um, it begins with uh, Sylvia Plath, the applicant, Am I Your Kind of Person? And it ends with a poem by Eileen Miles about Joan of Arc. And it says, 400, the last lines are 431 uh, years ago today, um, while she was still alive, she was burned in the town square 
and a dove flew right out of her mouth. And what I do is kind of take that decade from 1966, the publication of Plath's Ariel in this country, to that uh, Eileen Miles poem and show what happened to American women's poetry in that that time. That was uh, Adrienne Rich, Muriel Ruckheiser, Audre Lorde, June Jordan, all these people and many, many others. There are 59 poets in the book who, who really changed, and many others who I couldn't include in my measly 200 pages, who really changed the landscape of American poetry. So, so. you've really been thinking about that. When you're, you're at the helm of a project like that, that's something that must uh, can kind of be consuming as well. It, it was, it was yes, it was, but it was sort of great to have to leap right into that after the book tour, you know, to have to leap right back into that must that might have been just what you needed it was just what i needed not something to write but something to put together and um and it's so important as well well i'm very excited about it because i think that i've integrated a lot of um sort of strands from that time that have been separate uh and i think that moment in American literary history has not even been canonized before, has not been put together and named before. So I hope, I mean, there were anthologies at the time in the 70s, but... Um, but nothing with a little distance yeah. to reflect yeah. back. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. So three books coming out in the spring. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So That's it's a, exciting. It's nice. I yes. Mean, I'm, life's I'm, not so rough in the springtime. <laughs> it's busy. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's true. Well, maybe will you be coming back through Ann Arbor then? Will there, you your never tour, know. Well, that would be wonderful to see you again. Okay, well, that would be we'll great. We'll have all your books. And actually, you know, that reminds me because this is something new. Um, we have a, uh, two copies that Norton sent to us kindly. Uh-huh. Um, and so if I'm going to ask you to sign them, sure. at Honor. And then if you we have two copies. So if you'd like to email us. Listeners at Living Writers. Oh, uh, a at, giveaway. Uh, exactly, a giveaway. It's very exciting for us. Um, or anyway, at least I'm being goofy about it. Right? Living Writers at WCBN.org. Um, the first two emails we receive, uh, those these books, we will send them to you. We will put them in the post. So the first two emails that are received to Living Writers That's at exciting. WCBN.org, um, please include your address. So we can find you. (laughs) And I don't mean that in a threatening way. (laughs) Okay. Um, All right. Well, Honor, let's, well, we still have a few minutes left. Great. Let's let's talk um, a a bit more about, um, like, sort of the the risk of memoir. Although I love how you said it's the poems. uh, It just seemed like a natural, um, something that you, you, it led, the poems led you to writing in memoir. Is it because... um, things are then there's so much that you've said in a concentrated form uh with these images that you are now or or why i guess i should just say well i like that idea i like that idea i like to think that it's the i that that the i uh is is a familiar for me is a familiar voice i do write poetry in the i some people that's the letter i someone once said did i mean eye no not exactly but (laughs) um these uh, people with their questions. I know, but but so it's the I traveling through experience, but also in a larger sense, I think for me things accumulate, and I just this painful connection to my father. I just had to change it. 
I really couldn't bear not loving him and I and not understanding him and not accepting him. I mean, we can't make people change. All we can do is accept them for who they are. And love really ends up being about that. It's not about I love you because you're how exactly I want you to be. It's because it's you love people because the part of them that drives you crazy is part of what you also love about them, you know, up to a point. I, I know that sounds like idealization, but um, but it's sort I re- of accepting them um, when they can't even accept those pieces of themselves, like you mentioned, like yes. you said about your father. That- yes, I, I just, I just wanted to be at peace about him, and for years I knew I had known that I was going to have to. I couldn't. It was not okay with me to have all this hostility and rage and anger and fury and um, silence. The worst part was the silence. Um, and I'm not... With sh- your father or yeah, about with my your father? father with um, my father. Okay. And I'm not sure that I can... You know, I don't know if um, he came to being at peace with me. I, th- I think he did. But... I know that I was holding his hand when he died, and I was alone with him when he died, and that I was able to say, you know, I I love you, and uh, we all do, meaning my siblings. And and I actually said, uh, I mean, it sounds a little corny, but I said, you know, you taught me love in all its colors, you know, this idea of, and that is what that relationship taught me, that that you can sort of embrace, um, you know, either through letting go or, you know, coming to terms with who somebody really is. It doesn't mean you are, maybe it doesn't mean you're comfortable with them, but it means, yes, you are another human being and we all struggle. Um, And um, for me, that was really what the story was for um i mean it's and i think in a way that's what all art is for you know it's about uh revealing the human condition to each other re- revealing human vision to each other um you know and the more we know about each other the more possible it is to love and to sort of apprehend uh, the nature of the entire universe, if that doesn't sound too corny. But that that's really the kind of level that I was working with. Plus, then there's, it's a great story. But what are great stories really but great journeys into a kind of revelation of the human condition and who we are, you know? And and that's beautifully said, Honor. Um, and this book couldn't have been the way it it what it became the, the the book that it is if you had if you had written it at any other time, which is interesting because yes. there's a way because I think when people talk sometimes about memoir, they also are there's also that element of like well what do you divulge and what what am I 
allow, like, what am I to say, like my truth? And if it involves other, you know, these ideas. And so, and I know that you had said in, in some interviews that people were saying, well, why, why did you write this? Or why did you write this now? And all these different questions that, that seem to um, just be part of the package when you're, you're working in this mm-hmm. genre, but, but it's like the book is beautiful as itself because it's fueled not only by trying to understand these mysteries that you, you mm-hmm. were talking about and this, and this love and this, mm-hmm. and to, to heal some connection with him, mm-hmm. but all of these. So it's like, you're also like, a it's not only of the moment, but you're a detective into the past as well. And yes, how did this happen? How did how did we get here? And and that and that and that power that you had from the the beginning of writing that part right after your father's death. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, the way I led into that was I kept a journal of his of his dying. I asked an editor. They had a the American scholar had a feature called Journal at the time and I she just gave me this assignment. And what was so interesting was when I began the assignment I was still very angry at my father, but by the time I finished uh I had that had all changed and it was over the course of 3 weeks. It seemed or, no, that's 6 weeks, but still it seemed like a very short amount of time in for, a lifetime in yes. a lifetime yeah um and um i guess that i'm very grateful to have to be a writer you know cuz that allows me to it's somewhere i can take um take all of this i mean there's a poem of sharon olds called satan says in which she says write myself out of the locked box i think is what she says and and that's sort of what uh our job as women has often been to keep the family secrets to keep everything running and keep those secrets and i think one of the things that i that i did that was transgressive and that a lot of us are doing women writers is 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 no longer keeping those secrets saying we can't really know ourselves as human beings if we hold on to those secrets. And I knew that I really couldn't be whole holding the secret. Thank you. Thank you, Honor Moore, for coming and really talking my to me today. Enormous pleasure to be here. Oh, and, and thank you for coming to town for this for the day without art. We'll, we'll mention it. What bears mentioning yes. again, doesn't it? For um, it, it began in December first, nineteen eighty nine, and and now we're here, December first, two thousand eight. Honor Moore is in town in Ann Arbor, reading from her work to mark this this year's day without art. Um, and thanks again to the University of Michigan Museum of Art and uh, the Creative Writing Program here for bringing you here, Honor. And thanks to Hugh Stimson. Um, again, email us at livingwriters at, at wcbn org. <laughs> <laughs> and and thanks for listening to Living Writers streaming wherever you are. And um, this has been. Another issue of Living Writers, Honor Moore, The Bishop's Daughter, a memoir. And we've also heard a poem from Red Shoes Poems. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. When you're down, 
and trouble And you need a helping hand And nothing, oh, nothing is going right Close your eyes and think of me And soon I will be Brighten up even your darkest night. You just call up my name, and you know wherever I am, I'll come running. Oh, yeah, babe, see you again. got to do is call and I'll be there yeah 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 you've got a friend if the sky above you should turn dark and Sharks. Deep water. Thunder. Candied fruit. Gravity. Midgets with candles. Commercial radio. Start to work through your fears by pledging your support to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Please call 734-763-3500. Or online at wcbn.org slash donate. Operators are standing by to assist you in making the first step in coping with your fears. You're listening to WCBN Sports, where Michigan basketball happens. Now it's right the screen, Douglas, NBA range, three, Stu Douglas, Michigan wins. 18 